so many that we talk to when we go out soul winning, we go door to door, we're knocking on doors, and one of the big questions we ask people is, if you died today, do you know for sure that you would go to heaven? It's one of the most famous questions to ask somebody on the street, or we ask them when we're standing at the great, uh, great festival booth or whatever. We'll ask that question. We've asked it thousands of times. I personally probably asked it a thousand times at least. Most people, when you ask that question, most people will say, I hope so. If you died today, do you know for sure you would go to heaven? Most people say, I hope so. Another percentage of people will say, I think so. And then some people will say, no, <laughs> I know I won't. Several, very few, will say, yes, I know for sure where I'm going. But if we, we think about it, the majority of people saying, I hope so, I think so, is that how God intended for people to go through life? Is that how God wants people to go through life? Unsure if God will take them to heaven at the end of this whole thing. I don't think that's at all what God intended. There's no way God wants people to live with this kind of mentality. Uh, the Bible is full of clear teaching about eternal salvation. And I, was, I was think sometimes how horrible it would be to walk around in this life on eggshells each day wondering if God is going to strike me dead today and I'm not going to make it to heaven because I just did something wrong or I, uh, God doesn't love me. We have folks here in our church who I've talked to who used to walk around like that, who used to live life like that. Literally every night going to bed, try to think of any bad thing they've done so that they can get it off their chest so that they don't have to live in fear that they're going to go to hell. Uh, that grieves me to think that somebody would live like that. And I think it grieves the heart of God. He is, he, when he says, I give eternal salvation, eternal life, he meant eternal life. The apostle and pastor John here that we've been looking at his writings from the heart and the very mouth of God, it's been helping believers with their assurance. How do you know that Jesus really does live inside of you? The false teachers called the Gnostics were causing believers in the church all kinds of doubts, doubts about their salvation, doubts about the salvation doctrines themselves. So I'm sure there was some turmoil in a lot of people's hearts and minds and the apostle and pastor John, he says, I need to straighten some things out. From the mouth of God, I'm going to give you what will help you be assured in your heart. Now, chapter 3, John has made here that, uh, has been making a very clear point. One sign that a person truly has been saved and Jesus truly lives inside of that person and they truly have eternal life is that you have a changed life. There's a lifestyle change. There is a new life, a new righteousness that abides in you. There's a right living that you see coming out of your life. Uh, remember, last two weeks ago, 1 John 3.10, kind of a summary statement. In this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. So God presents only two spiritual families in the world, God's family and the devil's family. And you're, you're, one of, you're either one of, the, you're a God's family or you're in the devil's family. Everybody, everyone belongs to one or the other. If you're saved by the blood of Jesus, then you're a child of God. If not, 
You're a child of the devil. And John's point is very clear that your lifestyle, that righteousness that you see coming out of a person, true righteousness, will make clear who you belong to. If a person desires righteousness and works at it, it's part of their their desire in their heart because that comes from God himself, then that is a good sign that you are a child of God. But then in the end of this verse, he brings up another sign, another way to look at your own life and say, does Jesus live inside of me? And that is this, he that loveth not his brother. Is there a love for your brother? So he brings up now a new topic, and that's what we're going to go into next. And here's the statement, here's kind of a statement that we're going to begin with. When you're born again, you'll have a genuine love for your new, your new family, or you'll have a new love for your new family. There'll be a new love for this new family that you've never had before. And that's John's point that he's going to make here in the next few verses. We're going to kind of go through these uh, as quickly as we can, but there's a lot to say about these. So listen fast, okay? All right, <clears throat> verse 11, for this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. John says, this is the message we've heard from the beginning, meaning the beginning of your Christian walk. This is the message you heard from Jesus himself. And John, as a disciple of Jesus, heard this loud and clear from Jesus. He writes it in John 15, 17. These things I command you, Jesus said, that you love one another. Love is the great Christian commandment. Love God and love one another. Nothing is above that. The Bible says that God is love. Love is at the core of our faith as Christians, love. We are not commanded to, uh, to like everyone, be like everyone or like everyone. We're not commanded to just uh, be chummy chummy with everyone, but we are commanded to love everyone. In particular here in 1 John, it's, it's speaking of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ though. And that's where John is really narrowing his focus. God wants uh, John to get more specific here and help us understand more about this love. So he gives a scriptural example of what love is not. And this is very helpful. By the way, when we look at stories like this that John's going to bring up from the Old Testament, we remember this is why Old Testament stories are so valuable. And I think why it's so important to keep teaching them to the kids. I want want my children at least full of Bible stories because they're true. And these true stories bring out scriptural truths and doctrines uh, that can easily be pulled later in life because they already know the stories. Here's the example that John brings out. It's the story of Cain and Abel. Here's what John says. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one. He was of the devil and slew his brother. And wherefore or why did he slay him? Wherefore he slew him? Because his own works were evil and his brothers righteous. So you remember Cain, Adam and Eve's son. He killed his brother Abel because of this competitive jealousy that was in his heart. And he killed him over a sacrifice. He was jealous of Abel's sacrifice, that they were, both of them, supposed to be making a sacrifice to God. I mean, what a, what a reason to kill your own brother. But John's point here is, in Cain, you see the practical outworking of his evil heart. Murder, hatred, even going so far as to kill a person who was righteous. Abel was righteous. He was a loving person. So you have the child of God and the child of the devil, as he points out here. And you see the outworkings of the child of the devil in Cain. And quick note, 
uh, here for all of us, there were no guns back then. And there was still murder. Why? Because of evil nature. Our evil nature. We're all born with it. And all, all it took was a little jealousy. And Cain went ballistic. But don't think that we're much better than Cain in this room. In our natural state, every single one of us is a potential murderer. In fact, on the Sermon on the Mount, you remember Jesus even says that hate means you've already really committed murder in your heart. And by that account, if you think about it, there are more murders outside of prison than inside prison. And Cain is just an example of the unrestrained evil heart of an unredeemed person. He's just a person who uh, was a child of the devil. He never got saved, never got born again. And it just, it just worked itself out. But Abel, his works were righteous. Why? Because he was just some naturally better person? He was a, just a better guy? No, because he was born again. And the righteousness of Christ was in him. His brother's right. He was righteous. And just to add a, another practical lesson to the story, John tags this on. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. So by the way, since we're talking about this, don't be shocked. In other words, it may not seem right that a righteous person was killed by an evil person. That seems, that seems out of balance. That seems wrong. But God says, don't be shocked by this. As a Christian, evil Cains are going to keep going around killing righteous Abels. It's going to keep happening. Christ Christians are going to be mistreated. They're even going to be killed, as they are right now all over the world. But that doesn't mean the righteous have done something wrong. Righteous living always provokes hostility in an evil heart, in someone with an evil heart. We, because when we live righteous, it just shines a mirror onto them. It shines a light into their sin, and they don't like it. They hate it. But here's what God wants to comfort ourselves with, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. So don't worry. If you die, if Cain kills you, <laughs> you're going to heaven. We know we've passed from death unto life. And how do we know that? How do we know that? We're confident that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. We're, we're confident that we are born again because there's a new love for the brethren inside of us. See, that love that you sense in your heart when you walk into church and you see the people around you and your heart just uh, bears witness with their heart, and there's just something special there, that just tells you that Jesus is living inside of you and Jesus is living inside of them. And here's the truth this morning. If you see that, if you feel that genuine love, you can be settled in your heart that you're born again because it's not natural to love people in a deep way like that. You know, there are many stories of people who hated Christians and then that hate soon turned the, to the exact opposite love for those same exact people. The Apostle Paul, of course, is a great uh, example of that. The Apostle Paul, who was standing there holding the coats while they were stoning Stephen, the Christian. And, and uh, Paul later on became the greatest lover of Christians, he himself a Christian. We, a few weeks ago, we played a video in our Sunday school class by Lee Strobel. You might remember his story. He hated Christians. 
In fact, his one goal was to take down Christianity. And then he himself got saved and had just such a sensitive heart. He was weeping by the end of his testimony. Uh, you could just see the softness that had come over that hard man. My own grandfather, my, my grandmother got saved and she would begin inviting ladies into her kitchen to have a little Bible study around their small kitchen table. My grandfather would walk through and, and rail on them. He hated, hated it, hated what they were doing, hated what, those, what his wife was doing, hated Christians. And then he turned on a dime. He got saved and, of course, uh, God used him mightily in his life. It's, and it's an amazing thing when someone, people can turn on a dime when Jesus comes into their heart. The people they hated with a passion all of a sudden become the people they love the most in the world, new brothers and sisters. And that is a sign that Jesus truly does live inside of a person. And I, by the way, I love this definition of salvation that John gives here. They have passed from death to life, from death unto life. I love that. Most of us think in terms uh, that we pass, you know, all of us, we were born and then we pass from life to death. But believers pass from death to life. And he didn't, you know, Jesus, remember, he didn't come just to make good people or bad people good. He came to make dead people live. It's a miracle. It is a miracle every time someone bends their knee and bends their heart and says, God, I want to be saved. I believe that you came and died for me. When someone gets saved and someone is born again, it's a miracle every single time. So John continues this theme of assurance of salvation. You know you've passed from death to life because you love the brethren. And if you hate the brethren, then you know something. You're still abiding in death. In verse 15 then, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Jesus had said something very similar, again, on the Sermon on the Mount, as we mentioned. And again, this is in the present tense. So we're talking about hatred here, meaning ongoing, habitual hatred as a way of life, someone who's just characterized by hatred. In that person, in other words, a serial hater of God's people, obviously does not have eternal life abiding in him. And so John was sending a, a, a little... Uh, message to the Gnostics. Listen, you folks, you guys are being very hateful. And one of the things they were teaching, of course, is that only certain people with a special knowledge can uh, have this relationship with God. And all the other people that aren't enlightened can never get there. And so they really just created this chasm between people. And John's, uh, I'm sure, poking at that a little bit. You cannot say... That you, uh, that, that you hate your brothers and still have Jesus living inside of you. This does not mean, though, that God cannot forgive a person who has murdered somebody. Obviously, murderers, a, a person who is a serial murderer and a killer, is not going to have eternal life resting inside of them. But we know from examples in Scripture that God can and does forgive people who have murdered. Moses is one. David is another. Paul, as I mentioned before, he consented to murder. But the clear point is here that murder and Christianity are incompatible. And how could, and we all know this, how could a cold-hearted killer, a serial killer, a person that just hates people and continues to kill them, have eternal life abiding in him? And John says that's the same for somebody who just has a hatred 
toward people or hatred toward God's people. Now John moves away from hate, though, and he starts to talk about love. That's the negative side. Here's the positive side. And as a good pastor would do, we see John take them on a, on a journey of clarifying what love is, what true Christian love is, and how to apply that love. How do I take this concept that there is this love of God that rests and abides in me and now make it something that's a part of my life? And so here's verse 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So, you know, love, a lot of people talk about love, and everybody has a different definition, or they'll talk about different things about love, but it's often described as doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, and that's a, that's, that's a good uh, definition. However, this definition here in this verse is, goes deeper. Christian love for our brothers and sisters is far beyond that standard. According to this verse, Christian love is doing unto others what Christ has already done for you. He laid down his life. Christ laid down his life for undeserving people, and we need to do the same. Uh, there are a lot of undeserving people out there. People in your home that don't deserve love. People at, at this church that don't deserve your love. People at work that don't deserve your love. Other believers that you know in your family that don't deserve it. Your husband, your wife that doesn't deserve it. People at the DMV that especially don't deserve it. <laughs> but it's natural. It's natural to show love for somebody who has already showed you love. It's natural. We all want to do that. Somebody's given me something. Yeah, I want to give them something. If someone has noticed you or, uh, or uh, taken interest in you, and you want to love them back. Also, we like to love people or show love or give things to be noticed by other people. If it's going to be noticed by somebody, well, then I want to do it. So I, I get the feelings that I want to get out of that. Or from guilt, sometimes people will show love. This is why atheists and people who don't love God, godless people, will become philanthropists. Uh, but Christ's love is selfless, completely selfless. It says he laid down his life for us. You know, Jesus died a cruel death for unlovable people. It wasn't for lovable people. And might I just say this, he didn't just lay down his life for all of us, he laid down his life for each of us. Each of us. Jesus loves each and every one of us. We can all be sure this morning that God loves us. He laid down his life for you. He laid down his life for me. And he wants us now to do that same thing for others, for our brethren. Someone might say, okay, I got it. God wants me to lay down my life for the brethren. But I will probably not be in a situation where I have to die for my brothers or die for my sister. So then what does it mean to lay down my life? And here's the answer. It means to give when it is in your power to do so. Look at verse 17. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him. How dwelleth the love of God in him? This is a beautiful picture 
of what love really is, of what laying down our life for our brothers and sisters really is. You could say it this way. To love, laying down our life is giving or meeting a need when it is in your power to do so. It is meeting a need when it is in your power to do so. You know, God never asks us to give what we are unable to give. He only asks us to give what we can give. Whoso hath this world's good, you have this world's good, and you see your brother have a need, and then, but you shut up your bowels of compassion from him, how can you say that the love of God is in you? Does your spiritual family member have a financial need? Well, then you ought to give if you can. Does your spiritual family member have a medical need? Well, then you ought to help or give if you can. Does your spiritual family member have a need for love? Do they have a need for prayer? Do they have a need for encouragement? Do they have a need, need for just a shoulder to cry on? Do they have a need for tough love? Do they have a need for coffee? <laughs> Whatever it might be, just a simple act of friendship. If we see a need and we are in the, in the place to be able to fulfill that need and our bowels start moving, something in our bowels start happening and we don't do something, how can we say that the love of God is truly working in us? I love that the King James Version keeps that word bowels in there because that is literally what the Greek says. The Greeks use this word because it's where people would feel the deepest emotions. And that's why they would put that graphic word in there. But when the love of God is in us, we begin to actually feel the needs of others. We feel it deeply. And our heart goes out to people. We use the word heart. And uh, our heart, it, it, uh, it hurts. And I can tell you that it's so amazing to be on the receiving end of that. When our baby died, you know, our first baby uh, passed away right in my arms. I will tell you, the love and support of the church was incredible. It was like everybody with bowels of compassion just came and all like one just wrapped their arms around Elena and I. In fact, I use that all the time when I tell people about the importance of staying in church. You need to be in church and you need to be around a spiritual family and you need to be there as much as you can because you're going to need that family. You're going to need those people. You're going to go through something and you're going to need arms and bowels of compassion to wrap you up. There is nothing in the world like Christ-like love. And when, when a brother loves another brother and a sister loves another sister, it is so deep and it is so real and it's so compassionate, there's just nothing like that. So here's the bottom line for daily living that John gives. My little children, let us love in, uh, not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Don't talk about love. Do love. Just love. You know, John was dealing again with all these Gnostics who spent all their time philosophizing and all they're doing all this and saying all these things while there were people dying and going to hell. And people in the church who had great needs. And they're just ignoring them. Stop talking and start loving. You know, all these social media activists out there. I want to bring awareness. I'm going to bring awareness to this. I'm going to bring awareness to all this. 
But these people, they're sitting on there. They're never getting off their rumps to do anything. And they, those, these kind of people drive me absolutely insane. I have to be very careful to stay loving toward those folks. They sit in their little cushy houses and $900 phones and talk about the suffering in the world and how we're do, getting everything wrong. But at the same time, there's God's people that are out there trying to win souls. There's God's people out there building a church, trying to invite people and bringing people in. Pastor Mike, I just talked to him this week. He's down in Los Angeles. He'll be coming up here in a couple weeks. But he's down there just winning people to Christ, walking down the street. He barely even knows how to use a cell phone. But he's out there loving in deed and in truth while people are just talking about love. You folks out there giving invites for people to come to the Freedom Fest or inviting your neighbors, trying to do what you can to help to, to get coworkers and spreading the love of Jesus where you can. All these people crying about how bad the system is. And God's people are serving meals to each other. Uh, like the Mus- Mosqueda family. You know, two days ago, uh, Anna Lynn Mosqueda died. Uh, left Vince and then there are three little children uh, there. And throughout the past few weeks, several of our folks have just jumped on the meal train and been bringing them meals. I'm just amazed by how God's people rally around folks. Like at the beginning of COVID, I've told you this before, but people didn't know how everything was going to go. And so they just started giving, handing me money, saying if people lose their jobs, just give that cash to those people, whoever needs it. I literally had money looking for people that had needs. I had, I gave it all I could and I had still had more. That's how amazing God's people were. And our, our own uh, Aaron and Skyler recently, people loved them through their miscarriage. I thank you for that. Let the world keep talking about their love. Love this, love that, and we'll just love in deed and in truth. And we'll just keep loving people, keep loving each other, keep doing what we can for one another. Now John, is, if, is John is saying, if obedience and love aren't enough to convince you that you really are a child of God, then there's something else that you need to hear. And he goes on, and this is a powerful next few verses here. And here's the the bottom line of it. When you're born again, you can have a heart confidence in your eternal salvation. You can have a heart confidence in your eternal salvation. Here's what he says in verse 19. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than than our heart, and knoweth all things. So remember, John is still on the assurance topic, assurance of our salvation. He wants those Christians, and these Christians, and us Christians, to know that they know that they know that they are saved. They are of the truth, as you just said there in verse 19. Hereby we know that we are of the truth. So how do we assure our hearts when our hearts are condemning us? This is a big question for a lot of people. Who hasn't felt those feelings of guilt so strong that maybe even you might doubt whether or not you're even saved? In fact, the more you grow in Christ, I will say that you tend to start to feel more and more of how much of a sinner you actually were or are. But hear me on this. The very fact that you feel the weight of sin is a sign that you are a child of God. You know, un- an unbeliever may feel some guilt over some, th- some of the things that they've done at times. 
but he will never feel the same type of weight of his sin against a holy God. He will never feel the full, the full magnitude of his depravity. So John says that we can assure our hearts by taking our guilt to a higher court, as Charles Spurgeon put it. If you have that guilt, if there's something in you and you're doubting your salvation, what you need to do is take your heart and take it to a higher court. And that is, in verse 20, for if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart. One of the glorious things about being a believer is that you can take your feelings of guilt and bring them to God. And what, he, what does he say about the believer? God says that you get a clean slate when you become a Christian. God says that you're justified, just as if I'd never sinned. God says you get righteousness placed into your account. God says that all things become new. God says you get adopted into a brand new family. God says you have a guarantee the Holy Spirit comes in as the guarantee of your salvation. God says he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness if you confess your sins. So when people first get saved, many new believers, man, they, get, they hear all those things. This, this uh, sin, this guilt that they feel, get, it's like a weight that gets lifted off. My sins are forgiven. It's a brand new life. I'm new in Christ. All things are become new. But then over time, they start to feel something happen. You know, there's a, uh, we recently watched the story of a Burmese soldier who was, who had became a, become a murderer because he was part of the Burmese army. They, he, he said, I've murdered women, I've murdered children, I'm, I've literally thrown babies off of a cliff. And he thought, as he kind of separated himself from that and came to a Christian missionary group there, he said, I am beyond forgiveness. There is no way that God could forgive me. But the more he began to talk, the more they began to show him what God could do, and the more he began to understand what the cross of Christ really means for a person, and how a person can truly have all of their sins washed away if they come to Jesus, he, the weight literally just went off of him. This person who was depressed and hated himself all, all of a sudden became a person of joy. But oftentimes that will happen to a person and later they begin to start doubting again. Has Jesus truly saved me? Has he truly wiped away all of my sin? And they'll think things like God cannot forgive me. You know, our consciences that we have, it's a good thing that we have a conscience. By the way, it's the internal warning light system in our life. But sometimes that conscience system can be overactive. It all depends on the knowledge that the conscience has, really. This is another reason why understanding Scripture and knowing what God says and what's right and what's wrong and being discerning is so important. But John is saying, if you have accepted Jesus and your heart is condemning you, that what you need to do is you need to grab your heart and drag it before God. Grab your heart by the collar and drag it kicking and screaming into the throne room of God because God is greater than your heart. And you need to tell your heart to believe what he says. And you know what? To, to, to believe your heart over God's word is actually inverted pride. 
if you think about it. It means you're trusting your feelings more than the word of God. So don't ever call someone unsaved who, do, who God declares saved. God says you're saved if you put your trust in Jesus. So don't even say that, not even about yourself. This is how we assure our hearts that we're saved. You take your feelings to a higher court. What does the judge of the universe say about my salvation? But notice this phrase there, God knoweth all things. You see, even when you don't exactly do as you ought to do, God knows your heart. He knows your heart motivation. He knows that you're a child of God trying to figure some things out. You know, our kids are always doing honest things, they're doing, but they're saying ridiculous things. They blurt out things in the middle of the store when everybody's listening and we embarrasses the tar out of us. And I could probably give several examples, I'm sure. And they say things they shouldn't say, but I know as a dad, there are some times when they just innocently say, they'll say, you know, four-letter cuss words, and they didn't even realize they heard it somewhere. Not from me, okay? I'm <clears throat> but they'll, they'll hear those things, and they <laughs> they'll say it. But why is the father, why won't I just jump all over them and, and uh, you know, th- uh, throw the book at them? Well, because I understand. I understand. They're, they're trying. It's, I, I get it. And God knows all things, too. He knows our hearts. He's a merciful father. He's not going to just jump all over us every, every time one little thing we do. Some people, verse 17 and 18, you know, we read before, kind of point out people who might be too easy on themselves. And there are people too, who are too easy on themselves, and they just let themselves get away with everything. But these verses are more about people who are, who are too hard on themselves. And that's the truth, too. It's better to take your heart to God and just believe what he says. Just believe what he says. But it's so sweet when you can get into a place where our heart is more confident in God than in our own feelings. And that's what John says next in verse 21. Beloved, beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. See, when you're living in doubt and feelings of unforgiveness and unworthiness and all of that, then we lose confidence. We lose confidence in our walk with the Lord. We become timid Christians. We run and hide instead of coming before the Lord in prayer and seeking things and wanting to see things done and asking God to do things. Proverbs 28 verse 1 says, The wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Confidence is a game changer in the Christian walk, and God wants to live, us to live that way every single day. Confidence, not arrogance. It's the same Greek word as in Hebrews where it says boldly come to the throne of grace. Exact same Greek word. Have confidence to come before the throne of grace. He wants us to be so confident that we're saved. So confident that we're in good standing with God. That we just walk right in into where God is without fear. You know, people are so respectful around here. They'll walk by my office and they'll see me inside. And, uh, you know, may, may I come in and talk to you? Such good manners, and I appreciate that so much. But my kids, they don't do that. They just march right in. And, but God wants us to be like that. We just march right into the throne room. God, I need you. I know you're talking to other people, but I need you right now. I need to talk to you. And he doesn't mind that one bit. A person with confidence toward God, even when you sinned, even when you sinned, you just march right in there. And you bend your knee and you say, God, I want to confess something to you. And I know you're a God of mercy and grace. Would you please forgive me? And what helps us get there? And really, it is a thorough understanding of God's word about sin. 
you and I need to know what the Bible says about these truths. And I have doubts like everybody, but I'm so thankful. As I look back, I was thinking about this. I, I don't have a problem marching into God's throne room. I just don't. I know he'll, I know he'll hear me. And I know that no matter what I've done, God will listen to me. And I'm confident in that. But why am I confident in that? And I look back and I realize it is the scriptural truths that, that have been drilled into me from a young age. And it is, the, it is the Bible itself, the more I look at it and I realize what kind of a God that we have, that he knows all things and he loves us, I can come boldly to the throne room of grace. I'm gonna finish just by reading these verses here. I know we don't have much time. Whatsoever we ask, this is confidence in prayer, whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things which are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given us. Again, don't take this out of context. John is not saying that a person who does all the right things gets all his prayers answered. That would not agree with other scripture and it would not agree with what John has been saying. But what John is doing is he's giving a description of a person who is already a child of God and who is living in the light. And that person who is already a child of God and he's living in the light, he will begin to see answers to his prayers because his mind and his heart has been molded into the, the very same things that are, that are uh, that what God wants and wills and desires. His desires, my desires become God's desires and then I bring that desire to the Lord and he answers those prayers because it is a prayer after the will of God. 1 John 5, 14 this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And that gives us that clarifying verse to know what the, that all means. Even an earthly father won't give his child everything he asks for because he knows what's best for them. And God will do the same. But God's a loving father and he loves to answer our requests. He's asking that we would just believe and love him and abide in him and obey him and follow him. And he is listening to every prayer as we march right into his office. <laughs> Confidence in prayer begins with an active relationship with God. If, you, if we want to have confidence in prayer, it has to begin there. We'll never have it without that. It begins by walking in the light. So let's be confident in the Lord. Lord, we love you. We thank you.